0: Welcome to The Buzz, I'm Christopher Conover. April is Second Chances Month, so this week we take a look at second chances for the formerly incarcerated. (music) Tens of thousands of people are released from Arizona prisons and jails each year. When they get out, the formerly incarcerated must find jobs and housing, reintegrating into society. We begin our look at that process with a program in Pima County called INVEST. It stands for Inmate Navigation, Enrollment, Support, and Treatment, and is focused on people with substance use or mental health issues. Matt Pate is the INVEST Program Manager, and Manny Mejias is the INVEST Reentry Manager. Both are with Pima County Behavioral Health. Matt began our conversation, explaining what Invest does when someone is released from the Pima County Jail.
1: So, first and foremost, a ride. You know, it's it's scary coming out of jail and not knowing necessarily where you're going. Uh, we we typically work with the justice entities that they work with uh, that they work with, whether they're on a pretrial supervision or, or on probation. So that we can line up a, a place to go too. Um, a lot of the folks that we encounter are not—they're um, not stably housed, and so we often have to start with with some treatment. Um, and you know that that's that's important when they get out. But really, and, and this may be a good point to pass it over to Manny is that you know reentry starts for us on on the first day of incarceration, and so where invest really does a lot of our, our, our initial rapport building is when they're in custody. Uh, we we are actively involved with them in custody. And one of the first faces they see is is Manny.
0: Manny, tell us a little bit about that. As you said, day one of incarceration, there you are. What, what are you telling these folks?
2: What we do is we listen. We go and have a conversation with them. We want to make sure that they understand we're not just a provider. We're somebody there that they can actually talk to. Um, The reason that I've been uh, given this position is, again, I'm an expert by experience. So one of the first faces they see is somebody who's also worn that orange uniform at one time, who's eaten that food at one time. And so they can easily relate with me. Um, uh, The second thing that I do with them is I introduce them to freedom management. Freedom management is a curriculum that I've developed that's cognitive behavioral therapy life skills that focus on personal responsibility. We have 32 modules right now, and we actually have uh, one of our graduates. Uh, creating a 33rd module as part of his uh, training to become a facilitator. Um, What I do with uh, my students there while they're incarcerated is uh, as often as I can, we sit down for about an hour. We go over uh, whatever topic it is, whether it's managing your fear, managing uh, conflicts, managing communication, Um, and we discuss that. And uh, we uh, measure ourselves against the uh, seven dimensions of health and well-being to see where we're at. So the line of thinking is, you know, criminal justice is only really concerned with what it is you did wrong and what it is they're gonna to do to punish you. Whereas Invest is concerned with, well, why did it happen? What was going on in your life that made that risk seem acceptable to you? And what can we do to keep that from happening again? I also conduct classes once they're released. So they meet me weekly uh, upon release, uh, post release. And uh, we continue working with them, just trying to help them change their mind frames, change the way they uh, view the world.
0: Manny, when you first walk in to meet with somebody, are people lining up to see you, or do you have to do a lot of convincing to get them to, for lack of a better term, buy in to to what you're selling?
2: Well, first of all, uh, because it's it's a randomly controlled uh, program, Um, I don't get to pick and choose who comes, right? So we're told. However, uh, when our students, our detainees, when they get with us and they see what it is we have to offer and they understand that we're authentic, they go back to their pods and they tell other people. We get a lot of requests uh, through the the detainee tabs asking to be a part of the program. Um, Unfortunately, all we can do is offer them freedom management that's on the tabs because we are a random study, right? But with our students, again, one of the first things I do is I show them a mugshot. I show them a prison record. And as soon as they see that, they know, okay, this guy's just like me. It makes things a lot easier. They understand that I know exactly what they're going through. I understand the culture. I understand the language. And I can help them out. I can hear them out, right? Uh, A lot of times what they tell us over and over is the difference between your program and anybody else is you guys show up.
0: Matt, once someone's released from the Pima County Jail, Walk me through what happens, and while I know you're still in the midst of the study, what do you see in success-wise or not success-wise with this?
1: So, um again, when, when somebody's released from jail, again, most of the individuals we're working with are on some form of community supervision, whether that be through, again, pretrial or probation— So really step one is let's go make sure that uh, we we check in with those entities so that we can kind of know, like, what are your requirements? Because each of those, um, you know, kind of supervision plans, they are pretty much tailored to that individual. If they have circumstances that, you know, require a DV class or mental health conditions or whatever it may be. So we start out by knowing on the treatment side, what do we got to kind of make sure that we're, we're being cognizant of? as far as your justice obligations, right? Then, um, I mean, a lot of people coming out of jail are, are looking for a shower and a hot meal. So we, we try to, you know, get them bed, have a conversation. And then um, typically we we go into what we call boot camp, which uh, varies by individual, uh, but it, it's typically a 28-day, one-month kind of residential inpatient. And really what we're doing there is really trying to reassess the individuals once they're out of custody, right? Jail is, and prisons are extremely stressful environments. And even though you're accessing care there, what you're going to be behaving like, the stressors that are involved in your life are much different when you're in custody versus when you come out. So having that, that kind of, like I said, boot camp helps us get people kind of attenuated to, to the stressors of life. I mean, when these people are coming out of jail, they're not always coming out to, to great uh, home lives and situations. And so there's there's a lot of stress that people coming out of jail come back into. So we really try to take a, a, at least a good month so that they can really focus on their their care at hand. And then really from there, it, it can go in a lot of different ways. But I mean, it's it's a lot of housing navigation. It's a lot of, again, helping people comply with with the, the justice obligations. Manny, uh, we encourage people to go, uh, weekly to freedom management because it's one of the few groups that um, that is really available to people who are actively involved in the justice system that they can be around peers. You know, uh, we know on the treatment side that having peers, people like Manny who have, you know, walked the line really gives people hope in a way in a way to to see to see a path out of their current situation. Most people who are justice involved, a condition of their their releases don't fraternize with anybody who has a record or lived experience. So it's like on the on the one hand, we know that this treatment kind of modality works, but the justice side isn't always going to be embracing that. We've been able to really have a solid partnership with the sheriff's department, a solid partnership with adult probation, with, with pretrial. When Manny first started doing freedom management, we had to get that blessed by probation. And we actually had those groups for the first, what, six months at a probation office with probation officers in the room and them in the room. And I think it was that trust building of, of seeing that, you know, we're not, you know, trying to do anything but help people, you know, live the best versions of, of themselves, right? Build out these characters and I think uh, characteristics. And I think that, you know, what the justice partners really like about Manny's curriculum freedom management is it does really focus on individual accountability. We always say, you know, it, you know, it, it's your freedom to, to you know, it's keep sure. and maintain. Right. However, if you don't maintain it, the state will do that for you. And we know what those environments are. And, you know, I'm going to steal one of Manny's lines. You can't really get well in the cell.
0: How many folks have come through your program?
1: Yeah, so we uh, just this week enrolled our ninety-second participant into the community reentry study. Now you got to think, half of those individuals go into invest, right? The the program that we operate, because that's the treatment condition of the study. The others go into into kind of status quo, which is is really challenging, right? Because there there are services out there. Uh, you know, whether they're through health insurance plans, through the Community Behavioral Health Network, um, we just find that um, it's not as robust as, as really the service delivery that we offer.
0: That was Matt Pate and Manny Mejias with the INVEST program. You're listening to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This is Second Chance Month, and this week we're looking at second chances for the formerly incarcerated. Finding a job is usually a legal requirement for the formerly incarcerated, but they face an uphill battle. There's stigma related with their status, as well as the fact that many have been out of the public job force for years. The ACLU in Arizona has a program that helps the formerly incarcerated find jobs and housing. The program's director is Khalil Rushton. He joined us along with Kara Jansen, who's the organizer for the ACLU's Smart Justice campaign.
3: For me personally, um, I was released in November of 2018. I was super fortunate to have uh, been... I worked a contracted job when I was um, at Perryville Women's Prison. Um, So I was offered a job with the same company when I came home. The unfortunate part of that is... Um, probably only like 1% of the prison population that happens for. So people are coming home and they're not having jobs. They're expected to uh, either parole or operation. Most of the time expected to go to classes twice a week or check in with their PO once a week, whatever the conditions might be are something that they're barriers to working a full time job, especially if people don't have transportation, they're having to ride the bus or the light rail that takes hours uh, to get to a job. And then you're supposed to also do classes and also, um, you know, drop uh, your analysis whenever they tell you to. Um, It also costs money to do that to drop your, urine sample. It also costs money to be on probation or parole. Um, so really the system is setting us up for complete failure. I know that right now with the conditions of COVID and everybody going back to work, there are more opportunities for us, um, having a record to secure, um, you know, a sustainable, sustainable employment. Um, before though, before the pandemic, you know, I know a lot of people that got hired at places, um, they said, you're good. And then the background check came back and they let the person go.
0: If I'm trying to hire somebody for a job that I have opened, there are lots of questions I legally cannot ask about them. Incarceration is not one of those some people might argue, well, I need to know if this person has been convicted of something. It sounds like what you're saying to me is maybe that's a question we need to revisit on whether or not should be able to be asked by future employers.
4: The biggest part of that policy, ban a box, means a lot of different things depending on what part of the country you're in, what state you're in, um, because— ban the box in California it's truly a ban the box you know in in other states you know where they're not when they say ban the box they're not just taking it off the application but they're actually not conducting background checks on certain you know depending on what the job is what it means here in Arizona ban the box really removes it off of the application for governmental agencies you know whether it's city county state it removes it off that that bot. i mean off the application however band box is not mandated or or you know um it's not legislated into the private sector which more of the jobs are created you know private sectors is it's fueling the economy right now so um and like kara said the bigger part is we, we've we gotten so many people um, the interview, but then they turn around a week later and they're dismissed saying, hey, you couldn't pass the background check. So I think we really need to look at what are the outcomes we want is the outcome to make all this legislation or, you know, pass it to get people just to get interviews or to actually get hired. You see what I mean. So now that they they're not hired, Kara uh, just mentioned that also goes into uh, self esteem. It creates anxiety because you know when you come out, you have there's a punitive culture for you to do X, Y, and Z. One of them is to get a job. You know, one of them is to get stable housing or go back to prison. You know, so so I really think that we need to assess. Um, what we call band-a-box, what we call second chances, and to make sure that people are not just being transferred from place to place, but actually they're being empowered to transition from prison back into a normal life or or, or the whole of society. That's what the second chance should should be measured.
0: What do you all see as... The role in society, be it people who have housing available, be it for rent or, or purchase, and jobs, when dealing with people who come to them who have been formally incarcerated, what do they need to know so that someone who has, has done their time and wants to jump back into society can jump back into society? But let's be honest, I think a lot of people are scared of people who have been formally incarcerated. So how do we deal with them?
3: First of all, it's about uh, changing the narrative, right? About, about formerly incarcerated folks and the people that we are. We're, we're the same as everybody else. Um, we made mistakes, we made poor choices and everybody makes mistakes and poor choices. We just happen to get caught. So again, like I said, we're now second-class citizens and what a lot of business owners don't know is they can actually get um, what is it, Khalil, like tax credit, um, for hiring formerly incarcerated tax folks. Credit. Yes.
4: You tax credit.
3: It's, it is beneficial. And honestly, like I said, if we can change the narrative, um, we're not bad people. And honestly, most of us coming home who do want to jump back in society, as I, as I said, are the hardest workers that you will find. Um, we have something to prove. So, if we can somehow get to the business owners and the uh, the larger organizations and show them like what the value we could bring to their company is, um, it would be that would be amazing.
4: Well, I want to go back real quick. So, so Kara mentioned changing the narrative, and so the the changing that narrative eliminates fear because. You know, society, we, you know we have everybody talking about second chance, second chances, but society does not really embrace that second chance. And I say this all the time, it's really the community's opportunity to have a second chance. because when you look at the why's that people um, are have, you know, they have substance use disorders or you know, they're homeless or unsheltered. When you look at the why's, We have to figure out what role the community plays in that also. And then opportunity to get it right. Because everything we're discussing today, it's like, hey, this person served their time. They're reintegrating. Now we can change a narrative and really give them a second, give them a chance to reintegrate. But then the community has a second chance to get it right. Well, I know you had X, Y, and Z. You struggled with this the first time. The first time you may have not have found a job. That was... That that was a livable wage. So you decided to supplement your income. So I talk about that narrative. And then the other part of it, when it comes to reentry, there is no us versus you. You know, a lot of officials have a us versus you mentality where they should be participating to empower and educate and should be vouching, hey, you know, this person served their time. They fulfilled their obligations to the state. Now, how could we get their uh, rights restored? How could we get them into stable housing? How could we get them into livable wages? And so, you know, this is something that changed that narrative. And then the leadership here in Arizona has been poor. Now, And I'm going to call them out for that because leadership sets the tone. And everybody says, hey, I believe in those second chances, but they're afraid to lead by, by removing barriers to, to, to stability and empowerment of those who've been formerly incarcerated.
0: Is it easier once you've found that first job to then go find a second job? Because at least you have now a history that says, hey, I held a job. I was on time. I did all the good things I was supposed to do. Is it easier or is it just as difficult?
4: We have to also determine uh, or define job versus career because I always, you know, the people I mentor, I'm encouraging them to look at careers or even lanes of entrepreneurship because I don't want them to just be labor. So now they live from check to check. And we already know that the average wages in Arizona are about $15 an hour, which which is about $6 still short of livable wages, you know, here in Arizona. So why are we setting people up for failure knowing that at some point they're going to have to deal with less or supplement their income, you know? And, and so once they be, I mean, there's so many labor pieces out here where I got people who can do landscaping in the day or, or do, um, yeah, landscaping and then work at McDonald's. And I'm not negating those jobs, but how long is that person going to be expected to keep that up? Uh, And then I'll turn it over to Kara.
3: I do think getting that first job is important. It's going to give you the confidence to, you know, prove yourself, um, work up the ladder. um, And really, I think it's really important to learn the skills that you need to advance and it's important for us as a community of people reintegrating, giving us the chance to prove ourselves and also, um, you know, move up the ladder or you know get promoted or you know what I mean, things like that. So the first job is important, but I also think, like Khalil said, that a lot of times that the the first job is not um, a livable wage which then can also, like he said, cause stress. So it's kind of like a catch 22. Like you're, you've got this job and you're excited and you're working and you're making money, but it's not enough. So, and I know that it's a, it's a lot of people dealing with this same thing. It's not just formally incarcerated people, but like I said, we have the additional barriers that a lot of people don't have the classes, the the urinalysis, the checking in with POs, um, they show up to your job. That's another thing, too, people don't realize is when you have a job and you're on probation or parole, your probation or parole officer can show up at any time to make sure that you're at work. And then think of the the humiliation that can cause another another trauma that we have to go through
0: wanted to ask about preparation inside
3: so preparation inside
4: you know the 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 dynamics of the workplace and work environment has changed you 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 see what i'm saying um you have diversity equity inclusion you have all these different um things in play now so one of them like most of I, i did 15 and a half of a life sentence right i come out Everything, my anxiety's already up, right? So when Kara said like anxiety's up, people, fight or flight, then there's this stigma that, oh, well, they did the crime, they just want to go back to doing what they did, or they um, you know, they never wanted to work in the first place, or they're lazy. But what people don't understand, my first job when I went into prison was was like cleaning tables. I had to work in the kitchen. And I tell people we were making 10 cents an hour. I got people in there that's making 20 cents an hour, depending on what you're doing. And, and, you know, and, and this is till today, a majority of the prison population is not making over 50 cents an hour. However, they show up to work. They still fulfill their responsibilities. And so now the training aspect of transitioning. How do you transition from this prison job to a job out in the community? when i got a mentor i mentor a lot of my guys who've been down decades and i tell them look what was chivalry in 1985 is sexual harassment today you 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 can't they don't mean no harm but they might comment hey you got nice hair or something and then i'm i'm saying those dynamics make people feel out of place and then that's even before we get to the technology so so it's funny how there's an investment in labor prison labor um however there's no investment to transition people into jobs and careers you know we we can give you this shovel or we'll teach you how to do this this and that you can work this system here um, on a computer but it's for a, a company that has a contract with the prison so now it becomes exploitive you see what i'm saying so so a lot of times we've been advocating that they invest more in the prisons to prep people for the transition, but here in Arizona, it hasn't happened. In other states, they're doing a phenomenal job. You know, states like Colorado, you know, so now it at least draws down some of that anxiety and, 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 and increases the chances for people to create stability when they're released and then furthermore connect with community.
0: That was Khalil Rushton and Kara Jansen with the ACLU's Smart Justice campaign. We contacted the State Department of Corrections, Rehabilitation and Reentry for an interview this week. They didn't make anyone available. And that's the buzz for this week. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Samantha Larned helped produce this week's show. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer and our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening.